Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. On April 4th of this year, nearly 200 art houses around the U.S. screened Michael Radford's 1984. These theaters participated in this mass screening event in order to take a stand in favor of the National Endowment for the Arts, which has recently been threatened with cuts by the Trump administration. After the screening at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Film Comment editor Nicholas Rapold discussed the film's resonance in these times with regular contributor Ashley Clark, New York Magazine book critic Christian Lorenzen, and Petra Epperlein, the director of the Stasi documentary Karl Marx City. Questions and comments from the audience weren't recorded, but I've dubbed in the gist of their reactions. Here's the conversation. You know, I, I reread the novel and, and rewatched the movie, and uh, watching the movie now, what really struck me is just the kind of evenness of the pace and, and, and uniformity of, of the whole tone and color of it that's just as relentless as the world it kind of depicts it. I'm curious what each of your reactions were in, in encountering it again, because I think 1984 is kind of either the novel or the film is something you haven't seen for a while, or maybe you saw it maybe in a school context, and then just encountering it afresh, uh, it's, it's kind of very powerful. I've never seen it on anything bigger than a laptop screen. Than a telescreen? Yeah, a telescreen, indeed. <laughs> so as you said, I noticed that kind of relentless pace. I think the, the fidelity to the text is brave and, and impressive. I was really struck by John Hurt's performance. Uh, John Hurt, who passed away in January this year, and who was an actor who unfortunately never really got the leading roles that I think he deserved. There was some real kind of tenderness at the end there, which made me think of The Elephant Man, which is a film I was only able to watch once because I couldn't stop crying afterwards. And I didn't want to go back there. Um, and I think he brings some real soul and depth to it, despite the, the obvious coldness of it, which is very deliberate. Yeah, I mean, the, probably no one can play wretchedness as, as well as he can. You're just watching him being just this empty shell of a human being. He got to play Doctor Who once in a 50th anniversary special. A one-off for him. It was quite impressive. I don't think I'd read the novel for 25 years. And then... Uh, I spent much of the afternoon, about four hours, with my telescreen, watching the novel on the one hand and reading the ebook on the other. And what struck me most about both documents, artifacts, is that um, in a way he's kind of taken the structure of the English comedy of manners and or what Marxists might call the novel of bourgeois assimilation and turned it into um, a novel of anti-bourgeois assimilation. The couple gets together, they have hot sex against, they're both free spirits who don't fit in with society. Then they're torn apart, they denounce each other, and in the end, they get back together in a, in a way that fits the ruling ideology and say, we must meet again. Granted, this is not an, a marriage, but maybe it's a metaphor for marriage. And she, I don't think, the film doesn't really get into the artificial insemination program that, that for party members that the novel gets into. But in a way, it's quite a traditional book and film. So I have to admit, I've never read the book. Um, and I haven't watched the film for a very long time, so I just watched it again, um, which was very impressive. And as a filmmaker, I have to say, the pace of the film 
It's amazing. I mean, nobody left. Everyone watched the film very, very uh, patiently. But to deliver all the ideas in that slowness is amazing. No one could do that anymore these days. Um, I want to add one thing. So I grew up um, in a totalitarian system. I didn't say as well, but I did grow up in communist East Germany. And the novel 1984 was banned then. That's not an exclusive. I have never read it. That was just too much catching up. But no, no, no. After the wall came down, there was a lot of catching up. It had to be done. Anyway, if you were caught reading the book, you had to go to prison, especially in the early um, days of the GDR. So that is interesting in the context of what this film is about, all the truths and untruths and the totalitarian system. So me coming from a system not like that, but certainly somewhat like that, I'm most curious what uh, drives all of you Americans to embrace that film right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess part of the, 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 uh, the, I guess part of the premise of these nationwide screenings is that perhaps <laughs> that there, there are certain tendencies that we see in the government now in, in the new administration uh, that are sort of authoritarian impulses, I guess is usually how critics usually describe it. And definitely the attitude toward, I guess, truth and, and history in a way. I mean, it's notable, uh, you know, currently you have, have a president who will say things that are, you know, to quote another great theorist, Groucho Marx, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Um, and, you know, the, the president will often describe things that are contrary to, to what actually is. And, and this, the whole movie, I think it, that's part of why it holds a fascination for me is just this complete denial and annihilation of the reality of history and, and of the reality that's in front of you, um, which is terrifying. It's also speaking as of, uh, so I live here now, but obviously I'm from Brexit land. And there, there are kind of some very culturally specific aspects to that film to do with the British character and things that are traditionally associated with us, like, like kind of repression, sexual repression, not being able to um, express ourselves in a, in a clear and concise way. And th that film's very powerful for me to watch, to watch that. And it's also interesting that um, this film came out one year before Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Terry Gilliam's an American director who based himself in Britain, worked very closely with the Monty Python team and had a much more kind of antic and colourful sensibility. But the, it cleaves very closely to Orwell's text as well. And I think it'd be an interesting double bill to watch how those films play against each other. It occurred to me that only an Englishman could conceive of a dystopia that combined the banning of sexual relations and the and the suppression of all orgasms with constant gin drinking sounds about right i mean <laughs> we're, we're still taught that that's k2 curriculum stuff so. well there are all those i mean there are those interesting touches where you know you can overlay the reality of of, of this this dystopia with what we have in, in the contemporary world like i love that the highest power that the inner party has is to turn off the TV. <laughs> yeah. That's like one of the greatest powers he has. And, and the ubiquity of those screens, that's the feature of the dystopia. But it also happens to be the feature of our lives that we all have TVs that are constantly on. I'm not saying that we live in that dystopia, but it's just interesting, those kind of parallels you, you, can, you can draw or the parallel between, uh, I mean, what you were just talking about. Well, I mean, I, I guess our online privacy rights have been eroded just last week. So, I mean, that, that's as close as to the telescreen as you're going to get, probably. Unless, well, I, Edward Snowden could probably tell us more. 
but this is where I think Petra <laughs> probably has, yeah. At the same time, we all volunteer so much of our information completely freely, and we have actually the power to turn everything off. That's the great thing about us. But if the film were made today, would Winston be kind of tweeting his, his thoughts? You know, something that's really powerful about it. Well, obviously it would be suppressed. No, actually, I think but... actually the, the big brother would tweeting the thoughts to him. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like what we are in, like since the election or since this country has a new president, everyone is completely almost paralyzed by using social media thinking they miss something when they turn something off, but they do have the power to turn it off and to disrupt this mm -hmm. constant stream of, of whatever's bombarded at them. It's just an interesting thing how that lack of privacy and, and the whole Snowden situation is at the same time counterbalanced with more opportunities than ever to tell the world what we're eating, what we're thinking, and, and how those that has kind of... They've both developed at a rapid pace and people's knowledge of how things work too and, and how the strings are being pulled. We had a big, uh, uh, did you have Big Brother in America? A TV show? Uh, yeah, I think we should, we had a version of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you give us all of our reality TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> On behalf of the American people, <laughs> thank you. Um, it was a, you know, a kind of the concept was that there was a huge house with 10 people picked who would apply to be in the, 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 the Big Brother house there would be an omnipotent, omniscient kind of person that would set the rules. And initially it was quite a fascinating sociological experiment because rules weren't impinged upon them too much. They were just allowed to get on with it. They made friends. A lot of it reminded me of um, the, the kind of central love story in there. And so, some of the, the relationships were forged were actually quite sweet and quite touching. But then as, as reality TV developed and people and more money was pumped into it, it turned into a 24 hour thing. The people that applied to be on it were much more self-aware. And, and I think the strings, people know more about how reality television and things like Big Brother are actually created. And that's something that I find interesting, increasing public awareness of, of, of how things are constructed. We talk about that in documentary filmmaking too. Right. I mean, that, that, that idea of performing, like voluntary, voluntarily performing for surveillance is what those, those programs basically are. But it's interesting you bring up Big Brother because thinking of that era, I guess that's late 90s, right? Or, or 2001. Early, 2000, early aughts. Because another thing that's interesting seeing this film now is, I mean, the different periods that dystopias come out, they, how they relate to the time they come out. So this has come out in 1984. We're watching it now in our own context. 1984, the novel was, was written 48, I think. 49. 49. Written in 48, published in 49. And he, he died like six months after he wrote yeah. it. It just took everything out of him. <laughs> Um, but it's in, in each of those contexts, it's something different. I mean, the movie drops certain aspects of the novel, which is kind of it, it drops a certain romanticism about proletarian pro, the proles. It's there's it's, a lot more of the Goldstein book, and then a lot more. There's that long drunken conversation about how bad the capitalists were and the House of Lords, and a lot of the myth of there's almost an almost like Piketty like analysis of income inequality before everyone was miserable after the revolution came. Yeah, yeah. And, and just I remember the book also having this real hunger for cultural history or, and the feeling of the trauma of that loss that the state creates. The constant, do you know the last line of that poem? All these fragments are gone because you're not allowed to read, basically. Yeah, and, and there's that scene in the book where he, he goes into the parole neighborhood and hunts down this old man and like just is trying to get him to talk about the past and, and the guy can't really remember any coherent memories, but he's just so desperate 
for some memory of, of the past. It's funny, I, I'm working on a piece, and I haven't gotten very far into it, about current dystopian novels. I, and I read, I started reading one today, didn't, I only got about 50 pages in. It's called uh, The Book of Joan by, I think her name is Lydia Yuknovich. And it takes place on a, obviously, the, all the dystopian novels I'm looking at today tend to involve climate change, sometimes gender and identity politics, gender fluidity, and much more about race. And then often this one has a, a populist figure who came up through capitalism and self-help, not exactly a Trump-like figure, but sort of anticipating one. And the, the internet in that phase passed through a telescreen-like period, such th- and eventually people just started writing their stories on their own bodies. I haven't gotten very far, so I can't report much more. Yeah. Well, that urge to tell stories and to continue to be able to tell stories, it just seems like a human need. And that's part of what the, this total state control is. It becomes so deadening and numbing that you have no story you can tell. His job in the movie, Winston, is to constantly rewrite and change stories so that they're in accord with the, you know, with the authority. Um, but, uh, yeah. Actually, that I find a very fascinating aspect in the whole thing because it's very much about memory and how memory is manipulated and erased. And then you mentioned... Trump earlier, who is constantly telling everyone about things that happened, but they didn't happen. And just by repeating over and over again that they happened, they still didn't happen. But the way how we see them or many people see them is ultimately changed. And I think this is really interesting. And we should think about that a lot because that's actually happening right now. Yeah. I mean, there's a long history of American dystopia from... Um, the the aftermath of slavery to Jim Crow laws and and you know the the, re, the post Reconstruction period, all that kind of stuff that counts as, as dystopian, and then all the way up to Donald Rumsfeld and and the the Iraq War. I mean, so so this thing has never been kind of 1984 has never been not relevant. But what is interesting about Trump, I think it's the purest manifestation of tell what you exactly what you said, telling people, speaking about things that are pr- demonstrably false but doubling down. And sometimes you might wake up and think, today might be the day that he budges an inch, but he's got this team around him that's working. And that's in tandem, I think, with the incredible temptation to, to check social media, to, to, to wake up in the morning and turn your phone on. And you can be enraptured by this kind of catastrophe before you've even got out of bed. And, and that's having kind of profound psychological effects, certainly on myself. I'm smiling tonight, but, you know, and it's, it's difficult to process. And, and that film tonight certainly is a reflection of that uh, has kind of got me thinking more. I've been reading a lot about different theories of lying. And uh, one that was going around last week, a lot of you might have read it. I forget, I forget who uh, the authors who were putting it around was the theory that Trump's lies and his surrogate's lies tend to be blue lies, which means that their their lives meant to rally his base and his base can tell that they're lies they know that he's lying about the crowd size or pizza gate or i know he's not the one doing that i was actually in washington dc uh, a couple weeks ago doing an event at politics and prose which is i had no idea because i hardly ever go to dc but it's on the same block as the pizza gate pizza store which I wish it, I knew its actual name, but there were 
two protesters outside holding uh, cardboard signs that said Pizzagate is real, which was a little bit jarring. So I, I suppose here is just a, an example where the blue lies become total and, in, and are uh, met with the power of a lavish state enforcement. It's actually quite a lot of attention the state lavishes on its, at least the party members. Yeah, it's actually interesting. You know, it feels to me, it feels a little bit like I'm living in a time loop, like in 19, in the 80s in East Germany. Like what Trump did after the election, yes, I'm the greatest. And like, look how great everything was, although it was truly not the fact. That's what the daily news situation in the East was. You're all aware of that. And But the difference was actually everyone knew that this is, that is fake news, if, to use this modern term. So no one paid any attention except a few people who actually really believed in what was going on. What scares me today is that although you say the, there are blue lies and people actually understand that these are lies, I'm not so sure about this is actually happening. Well, I mean, Winston seemed part of the reason why Winston does everything he does up to the point that where they get caught is that he knows it's his job to alter the truth. I mean, we see him crossing things out and changing them. I mean, it's almost as if all journalistic outlets had to do away with the practice of saying this article has been altered, corrected to reflect the errors, except instead of, instead of correcting inaccuracies, they're introducing them for the regime's purposes. And on a human level, I think it's at the intersection of um, self-preservation and also being charmed by very powerful national myths. When you talk, talk about being stuck in a time loop, it's very pertinent to what's happening in the UK at the moment. With the Brexit vote, which was a, a referendum, a supposedly advisory referendum, whether or not for Britain to stay within the, you know, the European Union, the largest you know, single market, uh, many, many persuasive reasons to stay. Um, the reasons to leave were listed as too many foreigners coming in and we'll take the money that's, go that's going towards Europe and we'll put it towards the National Health Service. And that was emblazoned across a massive bus. Now, the minute the, the vote was cast and, and it was decided that Britain would leave, it was immediately revealed that that was a lie. It was a flat-out lie. It was, I mean, it was known before that, that it was, I mean, it was reported all over the place that that was a lie but, beforehand. But even, you know... And Afterwards, Farage and Johnson admitted it. Absolutely. And, and I think it, it comes back to what you were saying about what people know deep down, what they're prepared to accept, what, what they're prepared to admit to themselves. Did you see the detail about what people want from Brexit? when one of the top things is changing our passports back to blue. Well, this morning I woke up, as I was saying earlier, you know, you turn your Twitter on and you, you look at what's happening. And the Prime Minister, Theresa May, was embroiled in a row over, over the removal of Easter from Cadbury's, which is a chocolate company, Cadbury's Easter eggs. So she refused to condemn Donald Trump's immigration policy, but she happily condemned a chocolate company for not being adequately religious uh, on their chocolate packaging. And I kind of, it, it is hard to, to work out what's happening. I lived in England for a while. I never understood how Easter was so big there. Easter is big. Easter is an important thing, although yeah. I'm not English. Welcome to the, the free Easter panel. <laughs> all, your, all your hot Easter chat right here. <laughs> Well, the good thing is, so although it's difficult to figure out what is really going on, and like we feel like there's a lot of manipulation going on, we do live in a 
an open democratic society and not in a totalitarian system. So we actually have many means to to do something. And actually, you know, the screenings of like, I don't know, 200 screenings countrywide, that's a good indicator that people feel like they, they have to do something and really um, actually come out. And I think this is actually a positive thing. Maybe it was necessary that something like this government had to happen for people to think about where they are in this moment, what they do with their information, and how they want to deal with with that. No, definitely. I mean, that's been, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but one of the most like gratifying and, and but surprising aspects of the early months of the administration were the, the strength and number of the protests, that people really came out, and that the passivity that you kind of always fear is just going to kind of continue to lead us downward, um, actually was just reversed and, and you had this kind of up, um, upheaval um, and, and now these screenings, it's also very interesting. I wonder if this is a good time maybe to just uh, get some questions or, or from, from the audience that, um, way in the back. An audience member asks about the look and feel of 1984 and its portrayal of a dystopia. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing. I mean, just is that 1984 is like the byword, the shorthand for what a totalitarian dystopia looks like or what you know, intensive state control or manipulation of the truth looks like. But in actuality, right now, what it looks like is a con man in a suit is how many people would put it. You know, it doesn't, it's not a guy on a telescreen. It's much, it's mundane in a totally different way. It's, it looks like the new uh, dystopian, present dystopian movie that's coming soon is called The Circle, adapted from a novel by Dave Eggers and sort of about Facebook totalitarianism in which a Zuckerberg or Sergey Brin or Steve Job type figure is actually played by Tom Hanks, America's dad. <laughs> that will be exciting to yeah. watch, that's for sure. But again, I mean, I have to say, like, we, we, we contribute to this a lot ourselves because, you know, the president then can use Twitter as much as he wants to if you don't read it then he's basically powerless. That's the difference to this system. You know, we do have the switch. Actually, we can't just turn it off. And the same goes for the information what we voluntarily provide to uh, private entities like Facebook, for instance, because, you know, we discuss a lot what the NSA collects and what happens to our information. We actually have a certain amount of control over it because, again, we live in a democracy. But whatever happens to our information, what we provide to Facebook, for instance, we have absolutely no control over, never ever. It's a private entity. And I think that's also a large difference to the totalitarian system, right? Like, so I made this documentary about East Germany to be seen, uh, to be watched at Film Forum, Karl Marx City. And a question which is often asked um, is the similarity between the Stasi, the East German um, circuit police, and the NSA, because East Germany was this most surveyed society in Europe in recent history, and there's actually a, a huge difference, which again is the difference between a totalitarian system and the democratic society, right? In East Germany, you could never talk freely about anything. You would be arrested, or you couldn't even read 1984, but here we can basically do things, which is important. Yeah, I mean, maybe the more operatives... I was, someone was asking, one of these news crews was asking, well, what, what's another dystopia you would recommend people see other than 1984? And I said, well, if you want to laugh instead of cry, you could see idiocracy. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Very true. Um, something that I was thinking constantly in that film, particularly when there's a slightly pastoral sequence of the two lovers going out into the forest, it made me think of The Lobster by mm. Lanthimos. 
um, which is a very strange film, which is premised on if you find yourself single in society, you get shuttled <coughs> to a hotel where you have 30 days to partner up with somebody. And if you don't, you are then transformed into an animal of your choice, hence the lobster. And, and it's as well as the kind of ontological aspects of the film and that kind of slightly strained relationship where you're not sure under what, under, for, for what reasons the two people are getting together. I thought the, the aesthetic restraint of both was quite remarkable because a lot, a lot of times when you consider a dystopia, you might think of special effects, as Michael Bradford referred to at the beginning, or some kind of pretensions to futurism, which can very quickly become dated. But something that's remarkable about this film is its aesthetic restraint, even the score by the Eurythmics. Oh, that kind right. of ghostly synth score yeah. is very restrained. And today it doesn't, to me, seem dated. And I think yeah. one way to create a powerful dystopia is to root it... Um, very clearly and plainly aesthetically in the present. So it does carry a, a timeless quality 33 years down the line. Yeah, but that almost seems part of the power of Orwell's original framework where he's almost written like a modern fable or modern, modern that it's, it's become modern myth. You know, people talk about Star Wars as being like a modern myth or, or something, but like, yeah, 1984, Animal Farm, these are remarkably durable stories and, and, and myths. Um, a question about the problem of torture in the film and in the world's dictatorships and democracies. How can it be resolved? Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to resolve, resolve it, but, but I feel like that almost goes back to what you're saying, Petra, about the, the voluntary nature of our society versus the torture that is used to enforce the dystopian society. Um, and I guess the difference between that torture and the torture that's been inflicted by, you know, U.S. military is that that's inflicted upon the enemy. In, in all cases, part of the problem with torture is Errol Morris kind of, you know, very, very ably demonstrated in his, his documentaries is that the torture becomes an end in itself. Like people just keep torturing, you know. I mean, the, there's, the weird thing in this movie is that they're tortured, but it just affects one individual at that point. And, you know, they, they can tell, I guess part of it is that they can tell other people and then that creates fear. But in the end, it just becomes about the perpetuation of showing power. And it, does it mean more for the tortured or the torturer, both in terms of imposing the system and a feeling of retribution for their descent or the status of enemy combatants? And, but, and I mean, the other thing that the torture does, yeah, is for the torture, exactly what you're saying is that it yeah, degrades the humanity of, of the torturer and of the, you know, the government the torture represents. And since our government is ourselves, that's why it's a problem when the government tortures <laughs> in our name. What's today's equivalent to the two minutes hate in the movie? Could it be certain presidential campaign rallies? I went to the RNC and uh, lock her up and the Giuliani speech and um, the chanting. It was the scariest thing I've ever seen. And it had the feeling of two minutes hate. Being in the room, that's what I was most reminded of watching this film. I went to, I did some campaign reporting and I saw some just minor Trump rallies and his just call outs about immigration and terrorism just did resemble that kind of tribal rallying, blue lies, two minutes hate, hate week they have in the novel. Yeah, just, just in case people, I don't know, this is more of something that's in the novel, I think the the two minutes hate is this regular ritual that everyone's forced to participate in, although they all seem to do it with gusto, where they're just looking, they're shown pictures of, of Goldstein and other like state. I mean, that's essentially what's the 
the opening exactly of the film, that's yeah. the opening of the film and, and it's the two minutes hate this hate week and back in the uk it's impossible to overstate the stranglehold that the far-right tabloid newspapers have on the discourse the sun the daily mail the daily express and tying into what i was talking about earlier about how the leave campaign was predicated on absolute hatred of foreigners the extent to which that bleeds into everyday discourse is quite remarkable, uh, particularly for me when I step away from it and come here. Not that, not that things are perfect here, but I do see higher levels of civic engagement and a more diverse media, which I can see by your facial expression, you're thinking, really? You would be surprised by the extent to which uh, the tabloid news culture really, really, really does dictate public discourse and makes a lot of things easier to push through. Uh, in, in a political parliamentary sense, without regulation or consultation. Oftentimes it's the PM consulting with Murdoch who runs the Absolutely. tabloids. But it, it is a, a real, both cultures, scapegoating is alive and well in both cultures. I mean, it's just, you can keep Farage, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting how hate mongering and fear mongering just seem to like turn into each other and perpetuate and, and continue. And the campaign, I mean, it's a mixture of the two, the hate mongering and, and fear mongering is something that our, our now president definitely engaged in. I mean, hate mongering directed towards political opponent, fear mongering directed against always the other, uh, you know, in this case, Muslims and Mexicans. So it's just unfortunately seems to be a very effective tool. Well, it's now the center left is now kicking up a lot of dust about Russia too, which is, I don't know, I don't know what to make of it all, but it does seem to have a tinge of the same version of paranoia drifting over from one side to the other. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the movie that is that the paranoia seems to be justified. <laughs> it's that, you know, they are going to burst in on you <laughs> when you're totally nude and vulnerable. Um, in your most intimate and private moments. That's, that's the extent of the control. And, um, but uh, it's, I, guess, I guess in an actual state, sometimes that's a fiction that's encouraged that that could happen. I don't know. I mean, it's not something that can actually always happen that that, that, that would require. Well, I don't know. I mean, like East, East but, Germany, you, I guess. I don't know East Germany, but like the Russia can be seen as a paranoia or not. I don't know. I can't really judge it. I just know like a year, the, I mean, year the, and a half ago, <coughs> there was this case in Germany. The, I don't know if you know about that. It was in the news that supposedly a Russian-German 13-year-old girl was raped by uh, immigrants in Germany. And that whole story was completely fabricated by Russians. It was everywhere. Yeah, It wasn't tabloid news. It was basically everywhere. And it turned out it was completely fabricated by, I mean, by Russians well, in cer Germany. Certainly it's, they're engaging so, in a lot of fake news production. Yes. Um, I guess I'm skeptical of the idea that the president is a Russian puppet. He seems more to be a member of the scumbag international and therefore has, <laughs> has capitalist scumbag friends from every other country. And I should oh. say that I would have much preferred to see Clinton win the election or Sanders. But maybe unwittingly, he just plays into the hands of these other forces. I mean, you shouldn't forget... Vladimir Putin is a uh, KGB man. He, I'm, yeah, I, so, I know that. Uh, he's skillful. So, um, and maybe the Trump just stumbles into yeah, yeah. the whole thing and helps everything. I, uh, yeah, shambolic scumbag international. In, in my, please, that's please, just Christian, my could you speak freely, please? <laughs> yeah. well, there's lots. There's it's been all lots being of recorded. Um, there are many cameras. <laughs> there's been lots of kind of long 
speculative essays about the, the kind of the theories of Steve Bannon, who, who I was thinking of during this film, the whole idea of war all the time is necessary. And the idea that Steve Bannon is this kind of great warlord wizard, a, a, a political theorist, whether you buy into that or not, um, he does seem to be worthy of further research so what do you, and, and what scrutiny. Do you, what do you think is the basis of his theory? What did he... Well, he's kind of gone back, he, he's read, you know, he reads these kind of ancient theories of history that war is necessary to stimulate the economy. I mean, Hitler wrote this in Mein Kampf as yeah. well, right? Yeah, particularly. Is Steve Bannon relevant to the discussion of 1984? I would point everyone in the audience to a wonderful article that was published in the pages of Film Comment by Jeff Reichert, which is a kind of, I feel sorry for the guy. He, he sit down, he's had to sit down and imbibe all of Steve Bannon's um, blood and thunder, horribly edited documentaries, but they really offer a window into this guy's worldview. And they are quite persuasively argued in a, if you want to view it binaristically, if you sit down and you watch a Michael Moore film, then, and I'm, I'm wary of making binary judgments, but you see a lot of the same rhetorical strategies used. I remember watching Bowling, is it Bowling for Columbine, which ends with a visibly ailing and distressed Charlton Heston um, kind of yeah, limp, limping away. He goes, and, he goes to his house. Yeah, and he? you can't help but feel empathy for Charlton Heston, even though Michael Moore's polemic is, is, is designed to make you feel nothing but contempt. So you can overstate the case. And I think that aesthetically and rhetorically, um, ba um, Steve Bannon's productions and Michael Moore's do share something in common, but really worth checking out that article. Well, thank you so much to our participants and thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>